This podcast is sponsored by the Faraday Battery Challenge, which aims to support world-class scientific technology development and manufacturing scale-up capability for batteries in the UK. The challenge is focused on developing cost-effective, high-performance, durable, safe and recyclable batteries to support the EV market. If you want to find out more, make sure to go to www.faraday.ac.uk. Welcome to the See Me Be Me podcast. I'm Nal Henry. And I'm Blair Henry. And we're two brothers who set out on a mission to make motorsport and STEM careers more diverse, affordable, and inclusive. We are the founders of The Blair Project. This podcast series delves into the minds of inspirational individuals who come from ordinary and often humble backgrounds, but through their belief, dogged determination and never give up attitude, I managed to overcome academic, social or mental challenges to achieve their dream careers. Our guests will share their life lessons that you too can apply to your own. We hope their stories will inspire you to go further, aim higher and accept nothing less than you deserve. Your ambition, your purpose is all within and we're here to help you unlock it. The planet of possibilities are endless. So on today's episode, we are joined by Shazad Sheikh, also known as Brown Car Guy. Shazad is an accomplished multimedia journalist and content creator who has been covering the automotive arena for over three decades across the UK, Middle East, and South Asia. Presently, he creates content for at Brown Car Guy channels and freelances for several organizations, including MotorEasy.com, the British Motor Show, and the national newspaper UAE, to name a few. That's right, Blair. And so on today's episode, we're going to talk to Shahad and find out a bit more about his journey as an automotive journalist. When did he set up Brown Car Guy and his aspirations for that YouTube channel? And we're also going to talk about his experiences as well, working as a journalist, not just in the UK, but in the UAE and Saudi Arabia. And a bit more about who his role model was growing up and what was his inspiration to become a journalist. And action, oh, and one more thing I forgot to mention is we're going to talk about the future of the EV industry and his thoughts about, you know, petrol versus electric. So what are we waiting for? Let's get straight into this action-packed episode right now. Welcome to the See Me Be Me podcast, Shazad. How are you? Thank you. Uh, uh, thanks for having me. This is very exciting. Very interesting stuff. Amazing stuff you guys do. Awesome. Oh, thank you. And so tell us, tell our audience who you are, where are you from, and how did you start on your journey now? <laughs> wow. How long have you got? How long have I got to compress over three decades into uh, what, three minutes, uh, if that? Um, so I'm Shazad Sheikh. I'm an automotive journalist and content creator. I have been for over three decades. Uh, weirdly, I actually started my career in Saudi Arabia. So I often lay my claim to fame as being Saudi Arabia's first motoring journalist. Um, but basically, yeah, I, I write about cars. I create content around cars. I do this both, uh, both uh, on a freelance basis for other outlets and also for my own brand, which is, of course, Brown Car Day. Excellent, excellent. And so, obviously, in terms of your, your background, you've, you've worked a lot as a, as a journalist, 
um, and you're also a content creator as well with your YouTube channel, Brown Car Guy. But right. take me taking if we go back to your childhood, did you always were you always interested in journalism? And did you know from what age did you know that you wanted to be a journalist? I think it's hard to pin down an age, but I mean, as far back as I can remember, there was always, I would say, three things that kind of, you know, dominated my interest and fascination. And obviously cars was definitely one of them, just as far back as I can remember. I mean, I remember being, you know, in primary school, standing in the school playground and, and just standing at the fence and looking at the cars go by and trying to recognize mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. And, and people often say, where did that come from? And honestly, I have no idea because with a lot of car people, you know, you ask where did they come from and it's from an uncle or from a dad or from a situation. Maybe, you know, maybe they used to live next to a racetrack or a garage or something like that. But none of that applies to me. So that's it's it's just something that was inherently there. And then the other thing that I was always fascinated in was um, writing. Actually, I used to love writing. I used to love reading and I used to love writing. And then, in fact, I probably loved writing more even than I liked reading. And for a while, I looked at becoming Right. So, so the third thing that really fascinated me was science fiction and, and comic books and that sort of stuff. So I used to read quite a bit of science fiction, of course, a ton of comics. And for a while, I thought to combine those two, so the, the science fiction and the comic books, with writing and possibly go down that path. And, you know, even did comic book writing courses and stuff like that in order to try and do that. But uh, ultimately, I found the opportunity to combine, you know, the, the automotive and the, the writing side and and go down that path and I've not looked back since. And with um, for our audience, uh, what comic books were you reading? <laughs> so people who are into comic books will know that there's DC and there's Marvel. I was always more DC, to be honest, back in the day. Oh. So it was always more Superman for me. Superman was number one, Superman, Batman, yeah. uh, Wonder Woman to an extent. Of course, with Marvel, you, the occasional Spider-Man, the Hulk and Thor and Iron Man, what have you. But yeah, it was always, always Superman for me. So uh, yeah, big uh, one of my all-time best memories was going to the cinema. I think um, it was the, the second movie that I'd ever seen in cinema. The first movie I'd actually seen in the cinema was Star Wars, so the first Star Wars. And then the second, I think that was 77. And then the second one was Superman, the movie, uh, starring Christopher Reeve as Superman. I think that was 78. So, um, which uh, to me, he's still Superman as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, those characters really, really had a big impact on me. And then, uh, Shazad, um, could you um, could you tell us about uh, some of the opportunities that you had uh, growing up? In what sense? In terms of like, because um, you're all you're saying that you had your, your passion in terms of auto automotive uh, journalism. So, so, what were some of the opportunities? Because you said you grew up in uh, Saudi Arabia. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so my dad moved out to Saudi in '79. We kind of grew up there during the '80s. And uh, during the late 80s, I want he so in terms of opportunities, it, it is it's, a, it's an interesting word that you use. And it, it sometimes is the case that sometimes things will come along and you need to be in the right place at the right time in order to be able to maybe exploit the opportunity, maybe exploit is not the right word, but, you know, to be able to make the best of that opportunity. And I think that you, that possibly does apply in this case, because my dad worked for uh, a telecommunication company. And they would provide communications equipment to ministries and embassies and also for newspapers at the time. I mean, if you remember back in the day, newspapers relied very heavily on, you know, international news services um, through um, uh, t telex reporting and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. 
So they, he actually would occasionally go down to, I think it was Okaz, which was the publisher, one of the biggest publishers in Saudi Arabia, and they published Arabic and English newspaper. The English newspaper was Saudi Gazette. So when he, when I found out that he used to go down there, I'd kind of like try to get him to take me as well, you know, just so that I could go and see the inner workings of a real actual newspaper, you know. And through these trips, I started to become friends with the editor and the featured editor. Uh, I've got a couple of letters published and what have you. And they sort of thought, oh, you know, the guys can write. His writing's pretty good, you know. Um, and at that point, I kind of managed to talk my or either either I convinced them or I, I sort of laid down the uh, the beginnings of or the seeds of a spark of an idea or something like that. But uh, they said, you know, do you want to do a motoring column? And I was like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, so that was definitely an opportunity that was done. I mean, I did some other feature stuff for them as well. But obviously, my aim was always to do automotive. So, yeah, that was an opportunity um, that came along. But I, but it's the reason that you, when I said, what do you mean by opportunity? Because it's an interesting, it's an interesting way. Because in life, sometimes there are opportunities. Sometimes they come along, mm. but sometimes you have to make yeah. those opportunities. You know. So I think it's it's a it's a tricky word to say or to use in this context because it's not always the case that things will just come along and knock on your door. But sometimes you have to like go out there and and find them and then make them happen. So. Yeah, grabbing the opportunity when it comes to you. Yeah. Yeah. Now going back to you know you're growing up as a as a teenager as a as a young person, who were some of your biggest role models? That's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about that too much. I mean, I guess you know, split across multiple different areas of interest. Like I said, you know, whether it's writing or you know automotive or science fiction. You know, so like I said, I used to read a lot of science fiction. Um, you know, people like Arthur C. Clarke, you know, of uh, Space Odyssey and stuff like that. Um, that was always fascinating, the way that he laid down, you know, the laws of robotics and, and those, those sort of things, I think, which I think probably are going to come into play nowadays with the uh, with the advent of AI. I think people are going to be looking back at some of that fiction and going, oh, hang on, mm -hmm. I had thought about this before. And then when you move across to actual science fiction, you got, you know, things like Star Trek was a big influence. I don't know. If anybody that's watching this, they can probably see over my right shoulder uh, a model of the Starship Enterprise on my shelf back there uh, next to the uh, the James Bond Lotus Esprit in white and the green Highland Green uh, Bullet Mustang from uh, the 1968 starring, uh, movie starring Steve McQueen. So there are there are influences like that. And then moving to automotive, obviously, then I used to read Motor Magazine, Auto Car Magazine, Car Magazine and Performance Car Magazine. And one of the earliest journalists that I, I can remember, which I was really inspired by was um, LJK Setright. Not a lot of people will remember him now, but he was a very unique character, an incredible way of writing, and um, very, very inspiring person. And I actually got to meet him shortly before he actually passed, and it was it was quite awe-inspiring. And also, of course, you know, you've got to name-check Jeremy Clarkson and all of this as well, because he was an influence on a lot of us. And I used to read him way back, way back before he was on Top Gear, he used to write a column on the back in the back pages of uh, Performance Magazine, and uh, it was probably the first thing I would read in the magazine every month. Was he always this? Was he always that uh, charismatic back in the day? Yeah, I mean, I think well, this is the thing because I knew of him before he was on Top Gear simply from the column, and the, and again, one of the things was not purely just being inspired by automotive, but of course, the writer in me was also inspired by good writing. So yeah. when you used to go to the back page and read his column, the writing was always 
incredible, you know, and it would take you on these journeys, you know, on these complete tangents, you know, that wouldn't have anything to do with the car that he was talking about. And suddenly, and he would sort of bring it full circle and you go, oh, it suddenly clicks into place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you see stuff like mm -hmm. that, I mean, you know, you can love him or hate him. He's a bit of a caricature of himself now. But when you look at his early stuff and you look at the, the way that he did this stuff, then you've got to go, yeah, genius, absolute genius. Now, now, fast forward to today, uh, Shazad. What what does an average day look like for yourself? <laughs> there is no average day, really. <laughs> it's, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because like a, like a lot of people, I work from home now. I actually yeah. have worked from home for quite a while. Um, I think since 2011. So I, when I went back to the Middle East in 2006, I went back to Dubai to be the editor of Car Magazine. So this is the Car Magazine that we have here, but they have international editions. And so I got the opportunity to go to Dubai and be the editor of that. And I did that for until the contract ended. And fortunately, the company there that was publishing decided not to continue the contract. So I did that for five years. And then once that contract had ended, because we had already got following and a, lot, and a bit of a fan base there, we then created our own outlet, which was called Motoring Middle East, which was a digital outlet. And when we did that, we then that that is probably the last time I worked in an office because for that we then transitioned to working. Well, technically we were supposed to have an office, but we usually worked either from home or from coffee shops in in malls. Okay. That, that's how we used to do it. Um, and so now also I I work from home because I there's two parts of what I do. One is obviously my brand stuff, which is Brown Car Guy. So that's content that I create for my channels across all of the social media, particularly YouTube. But also I create content for other people. So I work as a freelance journalist. So a lot of time I'll just be, you know, doing that sort of stuff. Now, one thing that I will say in response to that particular question, because a lot of um, people, when they ask me that question or that type of question, because they go, oh, you know, you're a motoring journalist and you do this. It's, there, there's a perception there. And the perception there is that, you know, I'm driving supercars all day long, you know, and, the, yeah. and the reality is, I mean, certainly the reality is that's not the case now, but even back in Dubai, where I, I, you know, I, I did review a lot of supercars, but the actual driving part of the process is a minuscule part of what you actually do, you know, 90% of your time is sitting in front <laughs> of a laptop, staring at a blank screen, wondering, you know, what content to create next, you know, and even the car stuff, even the the driving stuff, very often, like, you know, I would get these cars or there or even here and people go, oh, you know, can I come out on the shoot with you? Or can I come and do, you know, going to do a video? Can I come with you? And I'm like, no, because you would be bored out of your brain if you came with me. <laughs> because, you know, people think, oh, I'm just going to go out and drive a 10 tenths everywhere. And the reality is that's not how it works. You know, the reality is you you go to a location, you're hunting a location, you have to clean the car or whatever, and then yeah. wait for the light and this and that. Or if you're filming, you got problems with sound. Like if I would usually go out and film videos in the desert, which you think is great. And, you know, to be honest, like you won't be disturbed apart from by camels. The occasional camels will come through. But apart from that, you won't <laughs> be disturbed. But every now and then you'll get a sandstorm, you know. And then you literally oh. like you just have to basically shut yourself into the car and wait for this thing to blow over because you just can't be out there, you know. So it's so there's, so there's always stuff going on. But it's not as it's not anywhere near as glamorous as, as people make out. Having said that, if I may be allowed to continue for just a few more moments, having said that, there are good bits. I mean, and some of my most, you know, my bucket list experiences have all been through this uh, job that I've done. You know, I've driven an F1 car, I've driven basically wow. all the cars I've ever wanted to drive. Pretty much, I've driven them all. Um, but other crazy things like I don't know. 
driving a powerboat in Monaco Harbor. You know, how would that ever happen if, if it wasn't for something like this? You know, so that so to be fair, there are there are perks of it, and there are really really good days. But those good days are not as often as people think. What sort of uh, supercars have you driven? I've driven all of them pretty much, um, and not not maybe not like today's latest latest ones, but anything up to say five years ago, I drove pretty much most of them. Wow, wow! So, me, me myself, I'm personally a a, a massive uh, Formula One fan, so it's yeah. uh, it's uh, on one of my bucket list. Uh, one day, if I could uh, try out uh, driving a well a Formula One car, like a test well, experience. So, well, I drove. It must have been 2007. And I drove a 2002 Renault F1 car at the Paul Ricard circuit as part of a Feel It program. They call it the Feel It program. And That's they France, would run that yeah. for uh, journalists. Yeah. Um, so I was very fortunate to be invited on that. And then throughout the day, you, they don't just put you straight in an F1 car. So you get the whole day of doing stuff. So they'll, they'll send you out in the Renault Clios, first of all you know, to learn the lines and learn the track and stuff like that. And then they'll put you into single seaters and you go out and you do stuff with those cars. I think, and there's various other things that they're doing in the meantime. So they're doing exercises with you. They're checking your health. So they do all of that stuff. You know, they do the reflex stuff, you know. So there was a whole day of that. And then I think you get about three laps in the F1 car uh, at the end of it, you know. And, uh, you know, you, you build yourself up to this thing and you go, oh, I'm going to get in the F1 car. I'm going to rev it up to 20,000 <laughs> RPM. I'm going to set some lap times, you know. And then you go out in this thing and you're absolutely terrified. You know, <laughs> you know, it's just beyond anything that you can comprehend, you know. And you come back and you really it's a really humbling experience because when you come back, they've got the telemetry, of course. <laughs> so, so you'll say they go, Oh, I was gonna rev this. And they and they go, Oh, what revs did I do? And you can't come to you and say you only did nine thousand RPM. So it's like which is nothing, you know, in an F1 car. So but it's um, it's a whole it's a whole different level. I remember seeing, uh, was it Richard Hammond's review of, uh, I think he was reviewing the 2002, uh, the yeah. Renault Formula One I think cars. he did the same program. I think it was, yeah. it was part of the Feel It program, but obviously that was bespoke for him because it's a TV show, but it was part of the same thing, yeah. And I just wanted to ask as well, um, Shazad, just in terms of your career as a journalist, what would you say is um, uh, three unique skills that you've learned in terms of making you um, into the success that you are? Okay, that's a very, very good question. And I think a very valid question. And I would say uh, it's not just the three unique things, but I think the three approaches that you probably need to look at. Um, one, one of the most obvious things is to know your stuff. I think that's pretty obvious. You know, it's like, and I don't mean like you need to be a mechanical engineer or anything like that, um, but you need to know what you're talking about. And you need yeah. to be able to do it with credibility and authority. And that's very uh, important. The, um, the second thing is, I would say, particularly from what we do, is having the ability to communicate. Because if you can't communicate, then all that knowledge and experience and all the things that you do are a complete waste of time. Because if you're not able to communicate that or make, or, you know, to, if you're not able to put other people into the driving seat, if you're not able to, you know, if you go drive an F1 car and you can't share what that feels like with other people, then what's the point? You know, well, then, you know, if you can't do that. So being a communicator, I think, is 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 very important. And part of that is the ability, so I think the third thing would be on, on this is part of that, is the ability to adapt. And I think this is one of the things where I probably would set myself apart from some of my contemporaries, if you like, because I think with a lot of motoring journalists or indeed journalists of, so like I said, I started back in 89. Yeah. So in 89, I worked on a newspaper 
where they were still doing pay stuff. This is before desktop publishing. I mean, can you imagine, right? So, <coughs> excuse me. So for a lot of people, they get stuck in their ways and they're like, well, you know, print is the way, print, we've always written stuff, you know. But, you know, like I said, I started out wanting to be a writer. You know, I thought writing was amazing. I still do. I still enjoy writing, but I do less of it now. You know, I, don't, I do it on the freelance basis. Um, to me, it was always a case of uh, adapting to what is coming next. You know, because if you're, you've got uh, knowledge and information that you want to get across to people, you want to be able to communicate. But then the third thing of that is like, where are the people? If they're not yeah. reading the newspapers, if they're not reading the magazines, then where are they? So you've got to be able to adapt to whatever the mediums that are out there, the media, the formats, whether it's social media, whether it's YouTube or whatever. So, you know, starting off as a writer, you know, at this point in Dubai, I've done six years of radio. Uh, I've done a year of uh, doing reviews on, on television, you know, and then we'd obviously done YouTube as well. And then you just have to keep also reinventing yourself and pushing yourself. I did live shows at the Dubai Motor Show. So again, it's, it's, it's not to be, so I think the third most important thing is, and possibly the most important thing is not to be stuck in your lane, you know, to always yeah. be looking out and going, all right, you know what, maybe I try this lane or go this way or swerve this way, or, you know, keep trying different stuff. And is that, is that something that you've always been, I guess in terms of adaptability, there's um, a few people would find that almost um, scary and whatnot, but is that something that's just, um, because obviously you've been, you've had experience at Saudi Arabia, you've been to um, UK as well. It's, it's adaptability, just something that's just natural for, for someone like yourself, would you say? It's a very interesting question. And I think that it's, it's something that you're actually making me think about myself now, actually, because it, it is interesting. And, and I was having a conversation some, some time ago with somebody. Um, somebody was asking me about my accent, you know. And obviously my accent is the result of living in different places and, yeah. and doing different stuff. And, and then I think back to, okay, if I had continued to be that kid, you know, born and growing up in Islington, in London, you know, what would my accent have been? And then I started to think about, well, in addition to my accent, what would I have learned or how would I have developed, you know? And I think that, yeah, living in places like Saudi Arabia and being able to travel to different places and seeing uh, other parts of the world, but also, I think crucially meeting people from other parts of the world and working with people from other parts of the world, I think it's, is, a, is a tremendous part of what shapes you and forms you and enlightens you. And I think that that's where sometimes we get a little bit too blinkered uh, about, you know, where we are and who we are and we don't understand the big picture. So one of the things I was talking about recently with somebody was I'd, I'd, I'd gone to Pakistan last year a couple of times and it had been after a long period of time. And by this time, I'm actually connected to quite a lot of the car people there. So when I was there, I was able to actually do quite a lot of content on cars and, and the classic car culture in that country. And I put that content up. And um, somebody said to me that they were fascinated by that because it just hadn't even occurred to them that you'll find car culture in places like that. And you'll find car people with so much knowledge, depth of information and passion about what they're doing. And I think that this is uh, fundamental and key. Uh, this open-mindedness to be able to, you know, to really embrace the world and to be able to go, you know what, let's let's not be uh, blinkered, let's not just be myopic in our in our views, but try to take in everything and, and 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 even if we don't know stuff, let's go find out stuff, let's go and explore, you know. So I think that I think that yeah, I think you're very right. I think that's a very good question. I think that the, you do get formed by your experiences, and the more variety of experiences and the most variety of places that you can have, has got to be a good thing. 
Now, Shazad, in terms of open-mindedness, what I want to go on to now is talk about your YouTube channel, Brown Car Guy. Where did the name come from? How long has the channel been going? And you do a lot of content around the EVs and revivals yeah. of classic yeah. cars. Were you were you always interested in electric, or were you you know were you a petrol head and petrol was the only way, and then you've been converted over to the EV side? So okay, so let's let's start with that first. And I think that you know um, I, I do get this a lot in the car community and all, and even in the automotive journalism community and in general car community, you're either petrol or you're electric, you know, and you cannot, you know, you're either over here, you're like, I must have an engine noise or you're over here and say, I must save the planet, you know? And, and I think that's the wrong approach. You know, to me, EVs are another form of cars. And fundamentally I love cars. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I love cars, you know, and I've been through this process before because I used to be, uh, I love petrol cars. And then, about 15, say 20 years ago, when they really started to push diesel. And I was in that position where I was like, oh, diesel, I don't like diesel. Oh, I don't like diesel, you know. And then when the common rail diesel engines came in, and when Golf, for example, introduced a GTI version of a diesel and GTI version, you went, oh, damn, this is actually really good. You know, this is these engines. And I think at that point, you know, it's one of the, my processes of going, of, 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 of realizing that I shouldn't be you know, um, so limited in my thinking. I should always be open to new approaches and new ideas and new concepts. And I think that that's just stayed with me. So when when electric cars came along, obviously there's that initial reluctance to like, oh, well, come on, these are just milk floats, aren't they? I mean, how can they be, you know, cars, you know? But when you experience it and you go, well, geez, you know, it's just really good, you know? Um, and I think that you have to have that open-mindedness. So to, to me, it's a case of, well, you know, it's another option. It's another choice. It's great for the motorists, you know, because the motorists can now choose between a petrol or a diesel or a hybrid or electric and maybe in the future hydrogen or maybe something else, you know. And to me, like choice is not a bad thing. Choice is a good thing. And you, with EVs, for example, I say to people, I say, look, you, for some people, EVs are the perfect car. They're the perfect car. It's like you shouldn't have anything else. That's the one you should have. Whereas for other people, I say, you know what? That EV is not right for you, at least not yet. It's, you know, you need to stick with a diesel or you need to get petrol, you know. So to me, as a journalist, the other important thing, and this goes back to what I was saying earlier about uh, being able to communicate, part of the process of being able to communicate is being able to empathize. And by that, I mean, is being able to put yourself into the other person's shoe. So it's no, it's no good just me going, I like this car, and therefore everybody must like this car. You know, I like the 68 bullet Mustang, therefore you must all like it. No, you don't have to, you know, it's fine. And for me as a journalist, or for me as a communicator, as a credible authoritative figure in automotive, for me, it's important to understand your needs and your requirements and your daily necessities in transportation. And at that point, I can then assess and go, right, actually, this is what you should be looking at, or this is what would suit you, or this would be appropriate to you. And if somebody comes to me and I can clearly see that they're a petrol head, I'm not going to try and convince them to be an EV guy. I'm just, I'm not. I'm like, okay, you're a car guy. You love the sound of a petrol engine. Enjoy it while you still can. You know what I mean? I'm not going to try and convince them. Whereas if somebody else comes to me and say, you know, I really want to save money. I'm very environmentally conscious. I live in the city. I don't do many miles. I say, hey, dude, you need an EV. You know what I mean, it'll be simple as that. So, but it's a case of understanding each person's context. And I think context is, is, is very important. I think a lot of people um, seem to forget that you know, for normal people, that's okay. But if you're in a communicator uh, profession, if you're a journalist, I think that's 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 a fundamental sin 
of not being able to put things into context. But as we drive forward to in, uh, an electric revolution, and you know the the current thing is that by twenty fifty, all petrol cars are going to be have going to have to be off the road. Where do you think? And we're all going to have to drive an electric. In terms of vehicle retrofitting, a lot of it's currently done at a classic car level, yeah. and the costs are, are quite high. Do you yeah. think by that time the cost will have significantly come down? That you know, all the petrol cars on currently on the road will be converted to EVs, or do you see it differently? I see it differently, personally, because of several reasons. A, the costs actually are not necessarily coming down. It's quite weird in the sense that actually some of the classic, the, some of the latest costs that I've been told about, the costs are actually even more. So some of, some of the companies that are creating these kits and stuff um, for the classic car conversions, the prices I've been hearing about 60, 70 grand for those. Whereas about a year, year and a half ago, I was hearing about 30, 30. I mean, like, you know, you can still go to someone like uh, London Electric Cars and it's about 30, 35,000 pounds to convert your car. But what's happening is that some of the companies, so, so, what, so what, for example, some companies do is they'll take the innards of a Nissan Leaf or a wrecked Tesla and they'll, they'll be using that technology to convert a classic. And obviously that's a little bit more economical. But what's happening now is that some companies are creating bespoke kits you know, with bespoke technology, which has been ordered fresh. And so, of course, that's then more expensive, you know. So at the moment, there's two issues with the conversion thing. I think the conversion thing is, I, I like it. Again, it's, to me, it's like, it's another option. So I have nothing against the conversion. A lot of people, I know a lot of people, when I put up these reviews, they're like, oh my God, sacrilege. Oh my God, vandalism. What have you done? You know, and I'm like, well, there's two aspects of it. A, if the car was dying or the engine was dying anyway and you rescued it, hey, great. And B, if the owner is rich enough and he can afford to do it, then, you know, who, who am I to argue, you know? Um, but there are some other stories. So, for example, uh, there was one story of I saw uh, an old uh, 80s Rolls Royce being converted. And I said to the guys, I said, you know, this is, that's going to take a lot of batteries. You know, said, why, why would you do that? And they said, well, it's very simple. The guy that owns that car has had it from you. He's had it a very, very long time and he wants to keep it forever. The thing is, his children, which are grown up now, they refuse to get into it because they're very environmentally conscious and they're like, we don't want to sit in this gas-guzzling, dirty old, great big thing. And so for the base, for the benefit of being able to ferry his family around in it, he's going through the conversion process, you know? So like I said, it's all context. Like you would look at it as a car guy and you're, oh, why would you do that? And then suddenly when you hear the story, you're like, okay, I get it. I, I see why they're doing it. Now, in terms of the, the other aspect of the conversion process at the moment, A, okay, the cost is pretty high, prohibitive, and I think it's going to continue to go up before it goes down. And also it's going to be problematic because we are going to hit a battery shortage, I reckon, around 2030. I think there's fundamentally there's not enough lithium that, that's going to be available to us. So I can, I can see prices continue to go up for a while. Uh, also, we're waiting for new technology. I think there's more stuff coming in the pipeline that's going to make batteries and battery technology better, faster, uh, and give us longer ranges. And then the other aspect of the conversions is why the classic cars, I was speaking to some of the engineers, and they said the issue is that with the more modern cars, and we're talking probably from the mid-80s onwards, um, the cars are more complex. So there's more electronics in it. There's more technology in it. And trying to then, you know, rip out the engine and rip all of that out and then put in, you know, electric components to marry it up to the existing stuff that's in the car becomes much, you know, exponentially more difficult and more complex. And so therefore it becomes more difficult. That's not to say that in future they won't find the solutions to do that. If there's a demand, 
then companies will find the solution. But at the moment, the only demand appears to be with people with classic cars, either people who have existing great classic cars that they want to drive as electric, or people that have classic cars which have just died and they go, well, we can't find the engine, so maybe we can stick a motor in a Nissan Leaf battery in there. Or we have people that are actually recreating cars. So there's companies that are creating brand new classic-shaped Mustangs, which are electric, I think it's charge cars they're called, or the Chesil Speedster guys, for example, which alongside the, the which a Chesil Speedster is a 356 replica, a Porsche 356 replica, alongside the existing car, they're now doing electric versions. So those cars actually are brand new. So there is an option there as well. But I think with the newer cars, it's going to be more difficult. I'd love to imagine a scenario if you've seen the Back to the Future movies where, you know, when they go into the future and you see that everybody's retrofitted the hovering technology into their cars. <laughs> imagine yeah. imagine if that would work out. Anything's possible at this stage, I suppose. But I think we're a bit way off. Well, a lot of things in movies are starting to come to life. Uh, yeah. So you never know. You never know uh, with, with that one as well. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, you talked about some of the research, some of the stuff that needs to be done with battery technologies and, you know, maybe looking into, we are running out of lithium and what are we going to do? And maybe yeah. one of the things that, you know, there's a lot of research into is like obviously recycling the lithium yeah. and using it for second life or maybe even using, you know, sodium batteries uh, yeah. Go, yeah. Going, going forward. You know, a lot of that research is being done by uh, one of our sponsors, uh, the Faraday yeah. Institution, yeah. the Faraday Battery Challenge. So that's doing some great work. Uh, doing research into that so hopefully we can get closer and closer to that you know we haven't got a shortage of these of these batteries um yeah, but... know, and i think that just on just if i if i can just add to that i think that i think again with the whole earlier i was talking about not being blinkered and not being myopic and i think that you know as an industry as a whole i think we should be looking at every possibility you know, whether it is traditional lithium-ion batteries or sodium-ion batteries or something else or diamond-encrusted radioactive batteries, you know, whatever it might be, you know, or, you know, um, uh, whether dilithium crystals from the Starship Enterprise. Yeah, I mean, it could be anything, right? Or even alternative fuels. So we're looking at um, net, neutral, uh, net neutral fuels such as you know, carbon extracted fuels and biofuels and stuff like that. So I think really at this point, you know, we shouldn't be putting it, we shouldn't be taking anything off the table. We should be looking at everything because we have a very uncertain present and future. And I think that, you know, to just go to just put all our eggs into one basket. We've been this down this route before because we've done yeah. this with diesel, you know, because 15, 20 years ago, we were told diesel is the answer. And now we're told, no, diesel is the fuel of the devil. You know what I mean? It's like in sales of nosedived, you know. And, this, and the irony is just as diesel technology actually got really good and clean is when we've now gone off them. So uh, so if diesel was a red herring, you think, well, what else is a red herring? And just for the sake of not going down the one single route, we should be looking at all possibilities. All possibilities. And I was just going to um, add, uh, Shazad, because... Uh, when we've been going to, um, well, there's been uh, events that we've gone to where there's been um, maybe people who, like, say, traditional uh, petrol heads who've had their, uh, let's say, concerns, you know, in terms of, like, uh, mileage on, like, electric vehicles. And uh, it's almost like a completely, like, different change, or, or maybe it's partly to do with people being scared of change. But what, what, what would you say to those sorts of people that were still a bit reserved on in terms of the path of electric vehicles? 
I mean, I mean, to be fair, I think their worries are justified, to be honest, because I think that the fundamental issue that we have at the moment is the infrastructure. You yeah. know, if we were able to very easily, very quickly charge cars anywhere, everywhere, whenever we wanted, I think the approach would be very different. And I think this is a this is a serious um, problem in the way that we are implementing or selling the concept of EVs, because at the moment, what you're trying to do is you're trying to guilt conscious people into an EV. You're trying to go, oh, but you, don't you care about the environment? What's yeah. the matter with you? you know? and, and I don't think that's the right approach. I don't think that's ever worked. You know, I think the, the approach that works is to present somebody with a better product. You know, and yeah. if you know if the better product is something that they go, oh, you know what, this works and it's good and it work, and it fits my lifestyle and it works for me. You know, if those things happen, then people themselves will flock to that product. You know what I mean? People will just go, oh, you know, I'm just getting one of those because my mate's got it and his mate's got it and my boss has got one and they're all having a great time. And why am I driving this dirty old thing when I can have that? You know, so I think that has to be the approach. But when you have an issue where you know, all your friends are telling you, it's like, oh, mate, it hasn't got enough range. There's nowhere to charge. Your nearest charger is broken. You know, you have all of these problems. Then it, it is an issue. And I think that, you know, again, it's going back to context, you know. And again, to me, when I, if somebody says to me that they can, if they say they can install a charger at home, I say, go for it. Yeah. And if they say, like, I can't, I live in an apartment, so I'm like, I can't charge at home. I can't run a cable. I could try running down a cable from my balcony, but I don't think the neighbors would appreciate that. But so that wouldn't make any sense, right? Um, so, and, and the nearest, and like I said, the nearest charges from here, they're usually broken or busy or whatever. And I live yeah. in London. So, I mean, so I think there's an issue. There's a big issue with the infrastructure with obviously the range on the cars but obviously the range is increasing as the technology is improving i think the latest like you say the technology that you mentioned and i think that byd is coming out with blade technology blade batteries that have a longer range i just tried it in the ato 3 which is great um but then the charging times also need to be quicker because there's only so many cups of coffee that you want to have on your journey you know, when, when you're trying to do a long distance run on the motorway so i think i think that I think trying to force people into EVs is not the right approach, but I think trying to get them to come or migrate to them by themselves because yeah. it fundamentally works for them, I think is the right approach. Yeah. Now, this one is a controversial topic uh, to some to some people in the EV industry, but and to a certain Mr. Musk who thinks that it's not a viable option. But what are your thoughts on hydrogen? I think hydrogen is a viable option, and I think it's been proven to be a viable option, uh, particularly by one of the biggest, if not the biggest car manufacturer in the world, which is Toyota. You know, I mean, Toyota has sold on it. I mean, they, you know, Akio Toyota is is a big proponent of it, you know, and he's he races the things, you know, he famously raced a, a Yaris with a, so there's two, and the other great thing about hydrogen is there's two approaches to it, because there's a fuel cell approach of hydrogen, which is basically using hydrogen to power what is fundamentally an electric car. And then there's the just stick it into your internal combustion engine, right? With a few little adaptations. And and I, and I think that actually is that's quite appealing because that means there's so many cars that we have in, on the roads. We need to find ways of keeping those cars going. And if we can do that, if we can adapt them to hydrogen or something, then maybe that's not such a bad idea, right? Um, there are issues with hydrogen because obviously, the again, the infrastructure is a major issue. Um, the transportation of hydrogen is a bit of an issue. Uh, there are concerns over that. But I think that from my knowledge and my understanding, and again, I don't know everything about everything, but from my understanding is that it is being looked at um, for commercial vehicles where it makes sense. 
Because if you have vehicles that start and end in a depot or in a particular location, then it is, it is easier to get hydrogen to that depot, you know, and then to fuel those vehicles there. And in fact, I believe that hydrogen is also being looked at in aviation as well, because again, you know, you could supply that to an airport and use it there. So I don't think hydrogen is dead and buried by any means. I think it's definitely, you know, and again, to me, it's like, I, I think that we need to look at multifaceted approaches to the future of transportation. And I think the hydrogen should definitely play um, a role in that as well. I completely agree. I completely agree there. And like you said, they are using it a lot in aviation, especially, uh, I mean, Airbus are doing some stuff around yeah. uh, uh, using hydrogen. Um, I believe, I believe it's Boeing as well. Uh, mm. are going to start that, going to start looking into uh, hydrogen. Now, Shazad, you, you've accomplished quite a lot. Um, so obviously setting up a uh, brown car guy YouTube channel, which I don't think you said how long it's been going, but you got no, yes. 15,000 subscribers on YouTube. Yes. Uh, <laughs> just, just yeah. You've got yeah. a regular audience. Obviously yeah. we came across you cause we met you at the fully charged live, yeah. uh, events in, I think it was, was it in Farnborough or was it with Harrogate? Farnborough, 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 yeah. Farnborough, Farnborough yeah. yes. Yeah. Uh, which is run by the great Robert Llewellyn. Yeah. Um, and, you know. I keep, mean, I keep meaning to catch him and get him to do uh, an impression of Crichton for me. From Red Dwarf. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I just love Red Dwarf. I think it's fantastic, you know. But, uh, yeah, so no, so just to actually, yes, I didn't actually answer your question. So, um, dedicated, I've been doing Brown Car Guy for three years, I think, coming up to that. So, just, I started it just before the pandemic. Uh, so I came back to the UK in the end of 2019 um, and probably got serious about Brown Car Guy 2020, 2021. Um, and yes, so basically the channel has grown in that time. Brown Car Guy brand was something I'd been toying with for a while. Um, when I came back, I mean, again, I don't know how much you might want to edit some of this out later, but I'll, I'll just, I'll go ahead and say it and then you can decide if you want to keep it in or not. But um, when I came back here, I was initially job hunting and I was looking for a role that was appropriate and suitable to my experience, skill set and portfolio and everything that I'd done. I was editorial director um, at one of the largest publishers in the UAE at ITP, um, heading up the entire men's group of magazines at one point. So I was unable to find anything that was suitable. And I, I felt a certain sense of, maybe it's just me, I don't know, but I felt a sense of like I wasn't getting the right positions because of what my name sounded like or what I looked like or what my religion was or, you know, any of these, any or a combined number of these things. So mm -hmm. to an extent, Brown Car Guy was a part of me rebelling against that, was like, you know what? If there's a reason that you're not going to accept me because of who I am, then I'm going to double down on my identity, you know, because I'm not going to change my identity. I'm not going to shortchange who I am. I am who I am. And this is who I am. I'm a car guy and I'm brown. It's, uh, I love it when I take my car because I have a black uh, classic BMW and I take it to car shows and I've got brown car guy on the, on the car itself. And I love when people woke up to it and they look around the car and they go, it's not brown. And then I love popping up and going, no, I'm brown. The car is black. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, at the end of the day, um, I don't think we need to be, you know, um, uh, what's the word that they use? Snowflakes. I don't think we need to be yeah. so delicate about the use of um, defining characteristics and stuff like that. Um, we tend to jump on everything nowadays and go, it's racism or it's not appropriate or it's not, you know. 
And I think that, you know, having grown up in London in the 70s, which I often refer to as the golden era of racism, um, <laughs> I think that I know racism when I see it. And I think, you know, calling somebody brown or black, I, I don't believe is racism. Mm -hmm. And also, again, going back to context, it's like it's how it's said. It's who yeah. is saying it and why yeah. they're saying it, you know. So people say to me, can we call you brown car guy? And I'm like, of course you can, because I'm brown and I'm a car guy. <laughs> It, it's a, it's a, uh, I'd say it's a unique name, and it does, uh, it does stick in your mind. So no, that's, because, the, uh, that's the other. That's a, that's a very logical reason as well. Because if you if you look at it on Google, I mean, I'm the only thing that will come up. So yeah. <laughs> SEO is very well. So that's also been quite handy. And it, and like you say, memory retention is very good for the brand as well. Because when you say brown car guy, people don't forget it. We we have it sometimes in the the Blair project where. Um, we, we say we are the Blair Project, and sometimes people think of the, the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, which is what uh, I thought as well when I first heard the name. Yeah. You know, and that's again, you, then you don't forget it because you you equate it immediately to something that was so was so famous. You know, or it's or it's they think we're related to Tony Blair, so it's either <laughs> filming ghosts or Tony Blair, our yeah. former prime minister. Well, have you had to, have you had Tony Blair on the channel? <laughs> Not yet, but I think it's it's going to have to happen eventually in the future. Got, that has got to be done. That has got to be done. Blair meets Tony Blair. It's, it's, <laughs> it's perfect. Uh, now, you've achieved quite a lot, you know, setting up this YouTube channel. You've generated a, a good cult following in the in the automotive industry, uh, uh, retrofitting. Um, you've been an editorial director in the UAE. I, I, I read that you set up the Dubai's biggest uh, car show at the time, back in 2012, yeah. Yeah. Um, which must have been fantastic. You've worked a lot on in the TV industry as well, yeah. um, in Fox Mena. But yeah. what I want to know is, what has been your proudest achievement to date? There's, you know, there's been many, you know, and I think that you have to take each of these and, and keep going forward, you know, and I think that uh, relying on any one of them. Um, so if I can tell you a little bit of a story, you know, we when I was back here in the UK before I moved out to Dubai, I was working on a magazine called Used Car Buyer magazine. And um, it was a tradey magazine. It was a sort of low budgety tradey kind of magazine, you know. And we got in another editor. I was the dep editor. I became the dep editor on it. And uh, we reinvented the magazine. And it was uh, very high-end, glossy. We completely, it was still called used car buyer. It was still dealing with used cars, but it was doing it in a way that was never been done before. It was, it was treating them like new cars. You know, the photography, the production values, so much better. Um, when that magazine, then they, the company that owned it, then decided to sell that magazine. And basically, they couldn't afford the amount of money that we were spending, I'm, I'm guessing, you know. Um, and the editor left and I left, you know. And when I met the editor afterwards, I said, look, you know, what are you doing next? Well, what's your next project? And he said, I'm never going to do a magazine again. And, and I'm like, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I, I just can't, I can't go through that again, you know. And I didn't get it at the time. I didn't really understand, you know. Cause to me, he was a great magazine guy. Was, his craft was amazing. I learned a lot from him. Um, and I, but I didn't, I couldn't understand that. And then I went through a very similar process with Karma, the least magazine, where, which was pretty much my baby. You know, I, I put in 110% of myself into that magazine and we had a good following had a lot of respect. And then of course the company decides that they're not going to renew the contract. It's simple as that, you know, and all of a sudden like five years of work is gone, you know, um, and it's, and, and, and it hurt. 
and then I kind of I went back to recalling what he had said, and I was like, oh yeah, I, I get it. You know, it's 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 painful when you when you put that much of yourself into something. And I, and I think that one of the things I realized is that don't hold on to these things too much because then we, then we created Motoring Middle East and I put a lot of myself into that. But then I left it. I left it with my former business partner and I moved back here. And um, I think that by this time I'd, I'd realized that, you know, you, you have to give, obviously, you must give 100% of yourself to whatever you're doing to, yeah. to do that thing justice. You have to. And that's that's doing justice to yourself as well as to whatever it is that you're working on. But at the same time, you need to be able to understand that life is ever changing your goalposts are ever moving you know and you know what that was your aim then you've got to find yourself a new target and you've got to keep giving yourself new targets and new aims and new ambitions you know and the moment that you stop doing that is the moment that you've given up you know and i think that that's that's when you know it's call it a day you know what i mean you know that's when you you're, you're done it's like when i often say to people is that when you think you know everything is when you th- is when you don't know anything and you should just stop you know, like even now, if I can say I'm 54 years old, you know, and I'm still learning new stuff, you know, and I still learn stuff and it still excites me to be able to learn stuff and embrace new things and try new things, you know. And I think that you've got to keep doing that and you've got to keep setting your goals and targets. And uh, the moment that you stop doing that is the moment you start stagnating. I, I guess my uh, next question is, is more of a, well, a personal question to yourself, but um I mean, you've achieved or already served so much um, as a journalist in the automotive sector. But what I wanted to ask you is, I guess, in terms of your legacy, how would you like to be remembered? That's a really good one. Legacy is something that you think about a lot um, <laughs> when you've done quite a bit. And I think that one of the great things about um, the way that we now kind of exist in a virtual world, because we all kind of we all live in a digital world now. And we all have a digital footprint. And in a way, we now have, it's, it's easier to have a legacy now than it, than it was before, you know. Um, but there are still things, I mean, again, like we talk about targets and aims. I mean, you say you've achieved so much, right? And, and I'm grateful that you're saying that. And I appreciate that. And thank you so much for saying that. But from where I'm sitting, I'm like, I haven't done anything yet. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, you know, to, in my head, I'm like, oh, I haven't done this, I haven't done that. You know, I've still got to do that. You know, so I've, you know, I've still got, like I said, still have aims and and bucket list stuff that yeah. I need to do. You know, um, writing a book, for example, is the one thing that I've done. Journals, I've edited books, I've, you know, magazines, newspapers, digital, radio, TV. I've never written a book. No, I've always wanted to write a novel. I've never done it. So that's you know, it's still something I want to do. Um, in terms of legacy, it's like uh, if, if, if people are still viewing your content, you know, a few years after you're gone, then I think that's a pretty good legacy to have. You know, at least you'll be remembered for a, a little while, at least. And I think I'll take that. Uh, what would be the you mentioned the, the title of a, a novel? What would be the title of your novel? Oh, well, I haven't decided yet. I've had so many false starts, you know, because initially I thought I was going to write a science fiction novel. So and I kept I kept I wrote I wrote about I kept I, when I say uh, false starts, I mean, I would get to like chapter two, chapter three, whatever, and then life would get in the way. Then you'd go away, you do other stuff. And the trouble I always have is then when you go back to it, you read, you read back to it and you go, this is rubbish. <laughs> you know, unfortunately, you know, you're, you're often your own worst critic, right? So you look at stuff, and you go, nobody would read that. That's horrible, you know? And so then you end up starting again. Um, so more recently, I've, I wrote one a couple of years again, which again, I've abandoned, sadly, and I need to go back to, but that was more a contemporary and it was sort of more comedy, but based around automotive, because I thought, let me do something that 
you know, that is real to me. Let me try that, you know. Um, one fundamental error I made, one mistake I made with that. So don't anybody do that. So I got, I think I got to about chapter four or five and then I sent it out to a few friends and I got mixed responses. Don't do that. Cause what happens then is then you hesitate, you know, and then that hesitation has now lasted two years. <laughs> so, you know what? Bang it out. Just get it out there. Cause you can always go back and rewrite it, but don't midway through, don't show anyone. <laughs> So, so Shazad, we're going to go into, well, we're about to go into, you know, one of, one of our personal favorite parts of the show, which is the three bonus questions. But there's okay. one question I did want to ask you before we go into those bonus questions is that if you were going back to the future, you know, um, Doc has created the time machine. Yeah. He's put you in the time machine and he's taking yeah. you back to when you were six years old and you get yeah. to meet your six-year-old self. What one piece of advice would you give uh, to the little you? Uh, that's, it's a very good question, and I do know the answer to that. And uh, the answer to that is very simply, uh, be more confident in yourself. Don't be so shy. You know, don't, don't be so um, concerned about what other people think. You know, this is something that I learned too late in life. You know, I was always a bit too shy to put myself out there. And then when I did it, I realized, you know, why not? And, and you get to a point where... You know, people, you, when we're young, we tend to worry a lot about, will people like me? Or you're worried, concerned about, I want to be liked. Or, oh, I don't want to look like an idiot. I don't want to embarrass myself. And I've embarrassed myself so many times. But you know what? I'm still alive. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> you know? so, so you go, well, you know, it's fine. You can make those mistakes. It's called life. You know, it's okay. So, uh, yeah, I would tell myself, you know, do the stuff. If I had said to even not even six year old, but 15 years ago, if I told myself that, you know, I'd be on TV or I'd be doing live shows and talking to an audience with a mic and I would be like, no, 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 not doing that, not doing that. Uh, and I think that I would go back and say, no, as soon as you can grab a mic and stand in front of people, do it. Mm. Mm. No, I love, I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think it's it's always the best thing if you can put yourself outside of your comfort zone and just go and do it. And then, you know, even if you do bomb, it's not, at least you've gone out there and you've done it and you've had that experience. You know, the more times you do it, the more comfortable you get and even the better that you get. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, if you do bomb, I mean, in the great scheme of things, it really doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It's like people get so caught up in like, oh, what if this, what if that? Look, you know, if if it goes bad, it goes bad. So what? It's, if people have very fleeting memories, they'll forget. You know, do something else. It's fine. <laughs> well, they might not with brown car guy because remember oh, that yes. name is always rememberable. <laughs> <laughs> no, but we're going to go into the next segment, yeah. uh, the bonus questions. Sure. Uh, so the first one I've got, and it's a, it's, it's related to comic books actually. Who would win in a fight, Superman? Batman. That's a it's 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 the ultimate comic book question. That actually, you know, that's that, that is a seminal question, isn't it? Because Batman has the wits and the technology, and Superman just has the godlike powers. You know, uh, I think that if you were being totally realistic and logical about it, Superman would win because you know he's just more powerful. You know, and whatever whatever tricks Batman's got up his sleeves, you know, he, Superman would figure it out. But if you wanted the the if you wanted down the heroic, more fun, more fictional you know, pulling for the underdog sort of thing, you'd want Batman to win, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, I, I personally would want Batman to win, but yeah, Superman is just 
a freak in nature. He's, he's just, godlike. Well, he, to he's be honest, not one of us. If you think about it, he's not actually a human, is he? So you'd be no. rooting for the human, right? You'd be like, uh, <laughs> <True>. <laughs> besides, as I say, if you can be Batman, be Batman. <laughs> you just hope Batman's got some kryptonite laying about. And, uh... Oh, I'm sure he does. <laughs> yeah. Second question, and I and I judge my guests on this on this uh, on the answer. Does pineapple belong on a pizza? No. Great. No, no, no. I think I love pizza. So no. I think only one person in six episodes has said that pineapple <laughs> belongs on a pizza. So I'm, I'm glad that more people have said no. And then the final question is, you know. If you could throw a dinner party um, tonight or, or wherever and you could invite four guests to your dinner party, wow. dead or alive, who would they be? Wow, that is fascinating. That's a really difficult one. Dead or alive. I mean, the, I, I think Arthur C. Clarke would be interesting. That mm -hmm. would be kind of interesting to have that, just to discuss science fiction with him. Or maybe even Gene Roddenberry, the creator of, of Star Trek. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of automotive, um, Colin Chapman. I'm a huge fan of Lotus. Yeah, so that would, be, that would be fascinating. Um, who else? It's a very, it's a very, that, that's uh, it's another question I've actually thought about, to be honest with you. But... Um, um, there's an Indian movie star uh, that I've always been a fan of. I don't know if anybody would have heard of him, but he was very big in the 70s and 80s, Amitabh Bachchan. So I would say him. Um, and I've often been compared to him as well. So, uh, <laughs> so him, yeah. Excellent, excellent. And now before we, before we close up the show, um, do you know, where can people find out about you or Brown Car Guy? Just Google brown car guys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I said, SEO is very well. As soon as you stick it in Google, you'll just find three pages of me. But yeah, if you go to browncarguy.com um, and if you want to find out specifically about me, just hit the about tab and um, there's a whole synopsis of uh, who I am and what I've done. Only one brown car guy. Well, no, to be honest, because there's one brown car guy brand, but... Um, so, so again, it's quite, I mean, again, if you've got a few more minutes, when I was in Pakistan and um, I was doing some content there, like I said, around, you know, the, the classic car community there, and I was interviewing one of the classic car owners, and he said, welcome to Pakistan Brown Car Guy. And he said, well, actually, we're all brown car guys here, aren't we? So, <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, actually, yes. <laughs> um, so I think anybody can be brown car guy. It's not, I don't think it's a restrictive thing. I don't think it's one and only. But uh, at the moment, the brand is mine, yes. <laughs> Brilliant. And how and how can listeners support your brand? Is it is it just going on the website, or do you, do you, do you have like a Patreon page or yeah, anything I do, like that? I do. That's very kind of you to bring that up because that's always very very helpful, especially when you're a content creator. But at the very least, if people like, comment, share, subscribe, that's very important, especially with the YouTube channel because YouTube is where you can generate revenue. But I do have a Patreon page and I have a Kofi page as well. I find the Kofi is actually a little bit easier to use um, for a lot of people because um, there's less stuff to sign up to, whatever. Um, so both of those links are, again, you'll find them on the YouTube page and you'll find them on the browncarguy.com page. Brown Car Guy, thank you for being a guest on the See Me Be Me podcast. And we hope you enjoyed this episode. 
I did, and I hope I hope it was worth having me on. I appreciate you guys asking me. Thank you so much, and keep doing what you're doing. Blair, Niall. So, what did you think about today's guest? Uh, well, she's, she's had today. I thought it was um, really inspiring. So, like you were saying, from a young age, she's always had the keen passion and interest in um, like comic books, uh, in cars. Then he also said he had an, um, an interest in like uh, science fiction. So I just thought that was um, interesting is that all of these different like hobbies and interests is kind of like combined into one in terms of where he is now as a um, an automotive journalist. So he took all of his like hobbies and interested interests and made a career out of it, similar to ourselves as well in the, uh, the field of motorsport. And what I also just took from um, what he was uh, talking about earlier on the podcast as well is um, that one of the main um, unique skills on the the front of adaptability. I did like um, how, you know, like the market will always change and there's always going to be things that you don't expect, whether that's in life or in business, but you've always got to make sure that you keep adapting or adapting or you can easily get left behind. What about yourself? Yeah, so for me, I, you know, it was really, really great to have Shazal on the podcast and, you know, hearing more about his story, you know, he didn't feel like he'd accomplished a lot, but he had actually accomplished quite a lot, you know, you know, working in Saudi, working in the UAE, being obviously working on television networks, being the editorial um, director of some of the leading car magazines uh, across the UAE, um, setting up Dubai's first ever like car show and the biggest biggest one at the time i thought that was really impressive and now you know he's launched brown car guy which is i still think is a fantastic name uh, uh as a youtube channel you know he's, he's been doing that for three years has, has grown a, a a quite big following uh, 15,000 subscribers 15,000 and i'm sure it's going to grow even more um as as time goes by um but it was quite interesting that Shazad felt that he hadn't uh, accomplished a lot and there's still so much more that he that he wanted to do I think going off what you talk about these three core values of you know the adaptability and what the working hard and the communication skills um before like yeah being able to communicate and even the about knowing yourself you know it's, it's important to know yourself and you know one of the questions that I asked him was you know what would you, you know, what advice would you give to your younger self if you had to go back in a time machine? And he was just like, you know, confidence, you know, go out there, go and do it. And, you know, don't, don't care about what other people, people think. think yeah. I think so much as, so much, uh, you know, in our society, we're always worrying about what others think. Um, sometimes we limit our potential just, you know, because we don't want to embarrass ourselves. And I think, you know, you just have to come out of your comfort zone and, you know, be able to take risks. Because so if you don't take risks, you, you'll never find, you'll never get to the desired outcome that you, you want to get to. Yeah, stepping out of your zone and just, uh, well, it's even like with ourselves, it's, you know, doing like a public speaking and whatnot. That was uh, something for ourselves that, well, particularly myself, is like I had almost like a, a fear of like public speaking in a way. It's almost like, what are people going to be thinking of me when I'm out there? Whereas now, 
we've I guess we've gotten to a point now where we're in ourselves where we've uh, we're so used to putting ourselves out there and so used to putting ourselves outside the comfort zone that it now just feels natural, natural, and you know that you just have to do it. And it's just similar to what Shazad was saying in the uh, podcast today. It's um, you only develop if you're willing to come out of your comfort zone and just um, step in and just step outside your comfort zone and develop in those certain areas. And I think it's the thing as well is that being open-minded to change. Yeah. Um, so, you know, especially, you know, talk about where the industry is going in terms of going fully electric. You know, there are still people stuck out in the ways about, you know, petrol, petrol, petrol. But we are transitioning into uh, an EV revolution. Yes. And, you know, EV cars, are, there's a lot of them on the road now. But I think it doesn't even matter within being a journalist, working in the automotive industry, just in life, be open-minded to change. Um and it, I suppose that goes back into the adapting. So when, you get, when you can see the change and you're open-minded to it, adapt to it, and you never know what opportunities can come out of that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, guys, if you've really enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe, and share this episode uh, with friends, family, and people within your own network. If you'd like to follow The Blair Project, on our socials. We are on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube at The Blair Projects. And we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Yes, we are on TikTok at Get Me Motoring. So, like I said, hope you've enjoyed today's episode and stay tuned for another exciting episode. But for now, catch you later. Take care, guys. If you've liked today's episode, make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. The Blair Project is all is on all major social media platforms, including Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube at The Blair Project. We're also on Instagram, Twitter, and, and TikTok. Yes, we are on TikTok at Get Me Motoring. If you'd like to follow myself individually, I am on Instagram at Niall Henry and also LinkedIn. Uh, and Niall Henry as well. And if you want to follow myself, I'm on Instagram as Blair Henry underscore 97 and also on um, LinkedIn as just Blair Henry. So we look forward to having you on the next episode. So stay tuned. Take care. Until next time.